Proverbs chapter 21, if you have not yet turned there as we continue our study through the book of Proverbs together. Last time we went as far as verse 6, just sort of began peeking into the 21st chapter this evening. We'll pick it up in verse 7 and with our uh, intention, try and just carry through and finish out the rest of chapter 21 for our time in God's Word this evening as we continue this study through the book of Proverbs. And what's really been, as I continue to say it redundantly but purposely, really just sort of a workshop on wisdom. And I think really that is something that we get here in the book of Proverbs. If you're looking for a New Testament companion to this workshop on wisdom, I always recommend the book of James because I feel like James is sort of a New Testament version of what we get in Proverbs. A lot of little short uh, statements, uh, each one of them kind of packed with different little topical insights on wisdom God gives to us. So this evening we pick up here going onward, chapter 21, verse 7. The writer tells us, the violence of the wicked will destroy them because, notice he says, they refuse, that is, there's a conscious rebellion. He says they refuse to do justice, that is, they refuse to do what is right, uh, what is lawful. So the idea here speaks of how violent people uh, who are willing to hurt others to seek to get what they want the Bible says that ultimately that approach to life is that of what is self-destructive. He says those who are violent uh, in their wicked intentions, he says the violence of the wicked person will actually be the very thing that ends up destroying them. In other words, their refusal to do what's right, their refusal to do uh, things in an honorable way, God says, is actually the mistaking approach of just a self-destructive tendency in their lives. There are some who simply not can't do what's right or won't do what's right, but there's sort of a just a conscious rebellion in their spirit. He says they refuse to do justice. In other words, there's been efforts to try and correct them. There have been disciplinary actions maybe to stop them, but they are just stubbornly bent on refusing to do what is just and right because simply, apparently, they are too selfish to wait for that which is good or right to come into their life through a proper pathway like all the rest of us may do. Again, many a times in order to obtain what's right or to do what's right, it means that we have to wait for things. We have to be patient. We have to go about things the right way. We can't rob or cheat or steal or harm or destroy others and bulldoze and ruin people's lives. But those who are violent in their wickedness because they refuse to do what's just, sadly, they feel entitled. And so therefore, in that entitled attitude, they will violate what's right and rudefully and hurtfully do whatever is necessary uh, in their violent approach to how they relate to people regardless of how it harms others to simply obtain what they want. And rather than patiently wait for what's right in their horrible treatment of people, he says they ultimately will end up in a self-destructive way, ruining their own life. Again, the idea is that lawbreakers always bring judgment upon themselves. Uh, in due time, that is always what ends up transpiring. Verse 8, he goes on to say next, and the way of a guilty man is perverse, the idea is distorted or crooked, but as for the pure, 
his work is right. So this proverb speaks of the difference between living with, we might say, a guilty conscience as compared to living with a clean conscience or a pure conscience. The first part of the verse speaks about the downside of living with a guilty conscience. He speaks, verse 8, of the way of the guilty. That is the one who's living in guilt. They have a guilty conscience because of how they're currently living, the wrong things they're doing, or because of things they've done wrong that they know were evil or sinful or corrupt, and they're living with the, the guilt of that in their conscience. And here he describes the guilty person. Notice the way of the guilty man ends up being perverse, polluted, or distorted. The idea is that a, a guilty person will always have a polluted mindset. When someone is living with a guilty conscience or living in guilt for what they know they're doing is wrong, that guilt within will hinder them from ever being able to see clearly or to think straight. There will always be something about their thinking pattern because of that guilt that makes them perverse in the way that they approach things or do things. They become crooked because really in their guilt, they're always trying to manipulate things because of the guilt that they're living under. And because of their guilty conscience, maybe trying to keep something covered up or make something still ultimately work out the way they want it to despite the wrongdoing or things that they're guilty of being involved in or participating in. They're always concerned about getting caught or getting judged. So as a result, their way ends up being perverse. That is, they have a polluted way of thinking. They see things crooked and their outlook is distorted and their mind is perverse because their pathway is perverse. And it's the very guilt within them that causes them to not be able to see things clearly because they're always trying to just keep ahead of the next thing or to stay out of getting caught or to stay in the corrupt pathway maybe that they're in. So one with a guilty conscience, their way is always going to be perverted. It's always going to be distorted. It's always going to be polluted. They're never going to think clearly or handle things properly. And guilt has that horrible polluted effect upon our lives and our thinking. But he says the contrast of that, but contrasting thought, as for the pure, which speaks of the opposite, the person with a clean conscience, the person who is not engaged in wrongful things in private, the person who has a clean, pure conscience, he says they can work properly thinking what is right, staying on track, the pure-minded person, his work is right. And so a pure heart allows someone to have right intentions, to be able to see things clearly. It allows their mindset to be healthy and, and they're able to work at things in the right way because their pure heart allows them to see things correctly as they need to. Remember Jesus himself said in the New Testament, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Uh, and so there's something very healthy and wonderful about having a, a purity within our heart and our conscience to be living with a clean conscience it allows us to be able to operate in a way where our intentions aren't corrupt. We're not trying to keep things covered or work angles or always staying a step ahead or trying to manipulate the next thing because we're already engaged in wrongdoing. And it's a much more free and wonderful way to live. You can have your way always distorted if you want to keep living in guilt. I don't recommend that. Where God says the wise person realizes 
to be able to get things purified in your life. Seek forgiveness from the Lord. If you failed, confess your sins. Uh, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the blessing to be able to live with a pure conscience, to have a clean conscience, and then you can work at things and know you're going about it the right way because you're not distorted in your thinking. And so the wise, the idea of this proverb, the wise pay attention to their heart condition to ask on occasion, is your heart pure? Is your heart sincere? Or are you living in guilt because that's going to corrupt your way of thinking? That will have a major influence to determine how you see things in life and the way you go about things and how you work on things. So pay attention to your heart condition. Very, very important thing. Verse 9, he goes on to say, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Well, that's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 10. No, I'm just teasing. Better to dwell, he says, in the corner, not just on a housetop, but notice in the corner of a housetop. Now, understand in that culture, this would be very picturesque for them. In that culture, they had flat roofs, and your roof area was typically like the, the patio area. Many times they would go up to their roof, and it was used as an additional space. Uh, remember Peter in the New Testament? It tells us that he was up on the roof praying and seeking the Lord, and it was there around the lunchtime hours. He was praying and seeking the Lord. He had that vision from the Lord. Again, Peter wasn't up there sitting on a you know, a pitched roof at a, you know, a 10, 12 pitch and, and trying to balance himself while he's having a prayer meeting up there. Their roofs were flat. They were like patio areas and they would go up on top of them. But one thing that was true about the roof also, though, it was a flat roof in a Mideastern culture. Understand it was also exposed to the severe heat and the hot sun beating down on your head as well as to any of the weather or the elements and so here, the idea is, again, the, the roof was an area to go, but it was exposed to the weather. It was exposed to the extreme sunlight and heat. And he says, not just to dwell on the roof, but in the corner of the housetop. And again, I don't know about you. you we all can remember maybe from when we were little kids. Typically, the corner is never the preferred place. Usually, the corner is where you send someone to punish them, right? Go to the corner, so a corner is never an enjoyable place to dwell. A corner is a picture of an unpleasant place to be. It's a confined space where you feel stuck, where you don't want to be, and where you feel like you're being miserably punished. Well, the Bible uses this picture to say better, it would be better to dwell up on the housetop in the corner of the housetop, he says, than in a house down below that's being shared together with a contentious woman. The idea is better to be more comfortable, stuck outside, in the heat, in the weather, in a tight corner where you don't want to be than sharing the inside comforts of the home if you're trapped constantly interacting with a contentious wife. That's the idea here. And contentious speaks of one who's always instigating, antagonistic, who loves to dispute and to complain and to constantly cause you know, conflict and argument all the time. Apparently, God's word is indicating here that it is a pretty miserable thing, and it's picturesque. God's picturing it's a pretty miserable thing to share a living arrangement 
with a wife who is always being contentious with you, who is constantly keeping strife in the environment of the household and conversations. The Bible is saying a man would find it a much better arrangement to just leave the home than to stay in the hassle of routine arguing and disputing and fighting and constant contention. Now, let me just say, this is not a biblical encouragement for men to leave if they've got a contentious wife. That's not what God's referring to. God is not here encouraging that if a man is living with a contentious wife, that he should be encouraged to leave, but he's describing a relational reality for the wife or for the woman to be conscious of such a thing and to realize if this is something that you can be prone to, that you might want to be careful. Because he's saying it is a reality that you can drive a man out of the house if you're always being contentious in your attitude, in your conduct, in your words, that you can actually drive your husband out of that house and he will go seek, here's the term, peace and quiet somewhere else. Even if it's up on the housetop in the corner of the roof, he'll go put himself in the corner. Because the idea is in his mind, wanting peace and quiet, he'd rather go in the hot blazing sun, sick his nose in the corner than to be down below in the house if it's gonna be constant strife and contention. And again, the idea is that a wise woman seeks to make her home an atmosphere that is peaceful and encouraging and welcoming and edifying. The Bible says a wise woman builds her home, the foolish woman pulls it down with her own hands. In other words, there's very things that can be done to build up or to pull down. And so here, just a, a biblical reality, a principle God shares, a caution uh, of, of being contentious and realizing how that can drive someone away relationally if one is not careful. Verse 10, he says, in the soul of the wicked desires evil, his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Now, the idea here speaks of, notice, the soul of the wicked. And notice, he doesn't just say does evil, but he actually goes so far as to say there are some who are so wicked in the depth of their soul that they actually, look at verse 10, he says they actually desire evil. In other words, they ha the idea is they have an appetite for it. It's not just that they're prone to do evil. It's not that they engage periodically. But here he's describing the soul of someone who is so wicked within that they literally, with an appetite, long for doing evil. I mean, that's kind of a really sad place to be, where someone actually desires, hungers after evil things to be satisfied and to be fulfilled, behaving in evil ways and as a result of that, those who behave in such a way, no one wants to interact with such people. I don't know many people who say, you know what? You seem like you really desire to do a lot of evil things. Would you like to be friends? Would you like to hang out and spend time together? I mean, I just, I so admire your desire to do what's evil and corrupt and perverse and polluted and wicked and nasty. And right? nobody wants to interact with those kind of people. Those are the kind of people that we hope that we don't interact with and that we never come into contact with, and no one wants to interact with a wicked person. Instead, it pushes even neighbors, he says, those who are nearby, far from any favorable relationship. See, the principle is nobody wants to interact with evil people who cannot get along with others. 
And I think it's almost a caution from God that when a person becomes unhealthy personally, and then they next become unhealthy relationally, and they can't seem to get along with anyone, God says, that's a really big red flag. When you see someone who simply seems to not be able to get along with others, that is a bad thing. And such people typically end up becoming very lonely and very isolated. You know, there are certain individuals I have met over the years. There are a few I've even said such directly to over the years. You are going to end up a very lonely, miserable old man. Because you just don't seem to be able to get along with anybody. You burn every relational bridge. You, you have an issue with everyone. And here God sort of cautions that there are those who do this and drive literally, even his neighbor, driving people away. And you know, I think the caution to us is be careful of people who can't get along with others. Something's very unhealthy about those kind of individuals. And so he says, be cautious. God's word teaches instead that it's wise to learn how to be mature and to navigate relationships properly and even to appreciate our neighbors and those around us. Again, who's your neighbor? Well, you know, the idea is the neighbors is the one that's nearby you, the one that God's put in your path, not just your, you know, literal physical neighbor by construction right next to you. Your neighbor are those who are living within the the atmosphere, the arena, the sphere of influence of our life. And the idea is just those who are amongst us. And we don't want to have them looking upon us with disfavor, and we don't want to disdain them. Instead, God says wisdom learns how to get along with people and to care about people more than our own evil nature or whatever it may be to learn how to interact with people. Again, Romans 12 gives much exposition on this idea of learning how to give preference to others, how to overlook faults, how as much as possible with you, the Bible says, to live peaceably with all men. And this is what God encourages a mature and a wise way to live, not to drive everyone away to where our, even our own neighbor finds no favor with us. Verse 11, he goes on to say, and when the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. You know, verse 11 here speaks of you might say, the different ways that people learn. And one of the ways he refers to people learn in the beginning of verse 11, he says, when the scoffer, the one who's mocking or scoffing what's right, and therefore they're rebelling, so therefore they get punished for their wrongdoing, he says sometimes when a scoffer is being punished, the simple, the unlearned, is made wise by observing the scoffer's punishment. So that describes a way that people learn. Sometimes people learn by observing others who make mistakes and then are being punished and suffering for their mistakes. And that is one of the ways that we learn. Typically, says the simple, that is the unlearned, or we might say even the unwise, they see a scoffer being punished and they decide, I don't want to endure the same thing. So sometimes by observation, someone will look on as somebody's being punished for their wrongdoing and say, if I do what they do, then I may end up getting punished or suffering and enduring what they're doing. So I'm not going to do that. And that is one of the ways that we can learn. We watch others suffer and we say, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be punished. So I'm not going to do that. But a better way to learn, verse 11, he says, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So wise people, the Bible says, 
simply take instruction verbally through advice, through, through teaching, through instruction, and, and they don't need to watch somebody else suffering and making mistakes and being punished and, and be kind of like a deterrent, scared into doing what's right. Instead, the wise person can just hear good sound judgment from a parent or a friend or an instructor or someone giving, and they just hear wise judgment and they just take it and they act upon it. And they say, you know what? That sounds good. I, I, don't, I, I can take the correspondence course. I don't need to observe somebody else suffering. That just sounds really wise. Seems like that's a right way to live. Thanks for the knowledge. I'm going to implement that. And the wise person learns to just be a teachable person. They learn what they need to know, and they put it into practice and implement it. And many times they spare themselves from a lot of additional heartache. Verse 12, he says, The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. So though the wicked at times do many evil things, and it seems like for a time that the wicked are getting away with things, right? And that's, that's a, a, a source of frustration for us at times or confusion. Remember in Psalm 73, that was the challenge of the psalmist and he was watching the, it seemed like the wicked were flourishing and prospering. It seemed like they were just getting away with things and he was wrestling with that perspective until he came into the house of the Lord. But the Bible says, look, the righteous God he wisely considers what's going on in the house of the wicked. The idea is the wicked may do evil things in the privacy of their homes and in their households, thinking that no one sees what they're doing and, and, and no one's going to hold them to account for what they're doing and that they're getting away with the wrongdoing in their privacy of their home. And God says that is an absolutely foolish mindset to have no consciousness of accountability to God, to think that a righteous, all-knowing, all-seeing God is not considering what's going on in the house of the wicked and that somehow they're just getting away with that. The righteous God sees all that is done. It's open in his sight, and he notices everything happening. We saw back in Proverbs chapter 15 where it said this, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. So it may seem like wickedness is being permitted, that in the privacy of people's homes, that filthy and evil and wicked things can happen, and like they're getting away with it, and the police aren't catching them, and nobody else is knowing what's... But, but God says, look, he, he's considering all that's going on, and, and I don't understand the timetables with God's judgment. I'm just thankful that I'm not God. And I'm thankful that God's merciful to me, and, 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 but to be able to rest in the reality that he says, the righteous God is considering the house of the wicked, overthrowing them for their wickedness. In other words, in due time, when just like with the Amorites, the Bible says in Genesis, when the iniquity of the Amorites reached its full, then God brought his judgment. And, 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 and God's timetable and God's mercy, understand, God measures time morally. And there is a place where things go to where then ultimately God says, you know what, there comes a time where then that wickedness, I, I've considered it long enough, now it, it must be overthrown. And the Bible says that a man cannot strive forever against his maker. And it may seem like wickedness is permitted in getting away, but in due time, God will expose and overthrow all wickedness, the Bible says. 
And here God is just describing that reality that it is foolish, foolish, foolish for anyone to think they can get away with wickedness even though it may be done privately, the righteous God is seeing and will hold to account those who are doing such things. Verse 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. So here's a proverb that speaks of what God's word teaches in many places, that it is wise to know and to operate by the principle that what we sow, we also reap. And that what we plant is what we are going to harvest. And that applies in many different arenas of life and in all the different choices we make. And the underlying principle here, verse 23, above all else, is that idea that what we sow, what we do, or what we choose not to do, is what we will then reap ultimately in our own lives. Look what he says. Whoever shuts his, his ears to the cry of the poor will also one day cry himself and not be heard as well. So the idea here speaks of what we do when we know perhaps maybe there's an opportunity that's set before us. And maybe God sets an opportunity before us. Someone is in poverty or, or distress or a difficulty, and it's set before us as an opportunity, and we know that we could step into that situation and answer their cry or help them in the given situation. Maybe it's a legitimate need. And if we see someone sincerely lacking with a genuine need and seeking help, and we can assist, and we know perhaps God's put it before our eyes so that we specifically should assist in that situation, and perhaps we see the opportunity to do what's right, that if we selfishly ignore it and we disregard for our own selfishness, helping in a way that we can or that we should have and we refuse to step into the opportunity and kind of just pass it off and brush it aside, then God says, what you sowed, be aware that someday you might find yourself reaping the same thing, that we should not be surprised then if when the time comes and the tables are turned and we're at a place where then maybe we're seeking help or we're crying out for some assistance that we should not be surprised if then we find ourselves being passed over. If we find ourselves, in a sense, reaping that no one is listening to us, that we shouldn't be angry, why is no one helping me? And in some ways, it may just be that now, in a sense, perhaps we're just reaping what we've sown, that what we once sowed, where we avoided an opportunity, that God allowed that to come back around, and now we find ourselves in a difficult spot and no one is willing to help us in a time of need. And we find ourselves kind of learning the hard lesson of what it's like to be on both sides. And now maybe we're in a spot where we're finding what it's like to be in a difficult place, and it seems no one is stepping in, and the, the challenges and the difficulties, again, all these things often are what build character and teach us lessons in our lives. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 to remember that what measure you, you, you pour out, that, that you're going to reap in kind. With the same measure that you use, it's measured back to you oftentimes. Again, just a, a biblical principle. Verse 14, he says, And a gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. So this speaks of, again, just the reality that even when people, he describes here, pretty picturesque, are severely angry. You notice he describes anger 
And then the second part of verse 14, strong wrath. So he's describing when people are severely angry and ready to punish for it, that it's amazing how that someone can be severely angry and ready to punish intensely, but it's amazing how a gift given secretly to them or a bribe can cause someone to forget their anger and all of a sudden to kind of dismiss what happened. Now, again, as I said earlier, this is not God condoning that practice. God's word doesn't condone bribery. Again, the implication here of the picture is doing something secretly behind the back, right? I mean, the word of God never encourages us to do anything secretly or behind the back that's inappropriate. Other than giving under the Lord, he says, don't let your right hand know what the left hand is doing, but that's giving under the Lord. That's a different thing. But whenever typically something is being done secretly, Ephesians 5 said it's shameful even to describe or mention the things that the disobedient do in secret. So whenever something's being done behind the back or secretly, bribery, giving a gift, the idea here is, is trying to pay somebody off to get yourself out of a jam or out of trouble. He's just revealing human nature that sadly, there is truly for most of mankind such little conviction in many people's lives to do what is genuinely right or to uphold standards that many people, God's word is just describing, can indeed be pacified by a gift behind the back or being kind of bought off in some way. We often say, hey, everybody's got a price, man. Everybody's got a price. And God's just describing human nature that sadly, many have such little conviction of upholding what is right and maintaining standards and convictions that corrupt people know that reality of humanity. And because of that, they will often exercise the practice of just buying people off, of just, you know, whatever it may be, whether that's on a personal level. I've been around enough. I'm sure others would as well. They may not want to testify. It happens in policing work and judicial work and, and governments. It, it's, it's pretty sick and disgusting. It's amazing how just the greasing of a hand of a politician can all of a sudden call a, a, a group of police officers off of something. Maybe they were ready to do a bust for six months waiting and watching and about ready to step in. And then all of a sudden, the palm gets greased and, hey, shut that down. Oh, isn't that amazing? How in the world all of a sudden did we put all this effort into trying to catch this hooligan, this rotten reprobate in the society? But, well, I'll tell you how. Because somebody with a gift pacified somebody behind the back, and, and sadly, humanity is corrupt like that. And God just describes that. And I think, if anything, it's just sort of a sad testament, and, and it's wisdom to just recognize this is how humanity is in their corruption. And sadly, that we would never participate in that, that perhaps we would never be on either side of that. I hope by the grace of God, we would be wise enough wanting to honor the Lord that we would have the courage, if ever need to, to say, you know what? I can't be bought, man. You're not going to buy me off. You did what's wrong, and, and you're going to have to answer for that. And, and that we wouldn't step in and let somebody buy us off or bribe us for some personal benefit or gain to, to kind of distort or, or get somebody out of a jam in some corrupt or polluted way. And in the same way that by the grace of God, hopefully we would never do that, that we would never try and step into a situation, try to buy ourselves out of a jam instead of taking personal accountability 
or personal responsibility. Again, we want to keep from those things that happen in the corruption of humanity. Verse 15, he says, and it is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. So for those who are righteous, the just, godly people, they find, notice he says, joy or enjoyment in doing what is just and right. So when you are a just person, you're a righteous individual and you love God, it's amazing how it's not a duty to do what's good. It's not an obligation. Oh, man, it's such an obligation to do what's right. Oh, it's such a duty to have to obey the Bible. No, he says, for the just, the righteous person who loves God, it's actually a joy to do the right thing. You know, the Bible speaks of, I delight to do your will, O God, where it can actually be a pleasurable thing to do what's righteous. What a wonderful experience when your heart comes to that place as a righteous person where you actually find enjoyment to do the right thing. You actually enjoy and find pleasure in being able to know that you did what was right in pleasing the Lord. Now, in contrast, he says, verse 15, those who do what's sinful to find temporary passing pleasure, they just ruin things because that's what sin does. Sin brings about destruction to the workers of iniquity. So wise people understand this lesson that our choices determine circumstances and experiences. So we can find enjoyment and fulfillment in living in right ways, or we can choose to take a wrong path where we bring destruction and misery into our life by living in sinful ways. God says, choice is yours. What experience? Do you want to have joy or do you want to have a life of constant destruction and misery? Verse 16, a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. So those who wander off course, they violate wise boundaries. They understand what way is right. It's not like they weren't aware of it. They understand the way that is right, but they turn off path in wrong behaviors or rebellion. He says they end up stuck in places that they never intended to be. I don't know where one ends up arriving to, but to rest in the assembly of the dead doesn't sound like where you want to be hanging out. But it is amazing how when someone turns away from what they understand to be the right way in a good way in rebellion, and they begin to turn off course, how they end up finding themselves, do they not, stuck, assembled with groups of people that they wish they never were among. And now they kind of find themselves in a place in life where they never wish to be. And look, he describes the assembly of the dead. Let me go so far as to say in a literal sense, turning away from what you understand to be right can also literally lead to someone's death. There are those who wander from a way of understanding and end up literally destroying and losing their own lives as a result of that. So very wise to recognize it's better to stay on the right course and not to wander, or if we have wandered, to get back on track before we end up at a wrong and destructive destination. Verse 17, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil, and those speak of luxuries in that day, wine and oil, will not be rich. So this speaks of the person who idolizes, and I use that term, idolizes earthly pleasure to the point of overindulgence. God's not a killjoy. God has no problem with us enjoying life. First, Corinthians, or First Timothy chapter 6, God says that he gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
there's nothing wrong with a you know, healthy degree of, of appropriate pleasure in our life and fulfillment. God's a good father. He likes to bless his kids. This speaks of the person, notice, who loves pleasure and loves luxury, wine and oil, to the place where they worship at the altar of pleasure, where their life is governed by the desire to satisfy self, to find pleasure and fulfillment. They have no self-discipline, no ability to use moderation or restraint. They're just governed by self-indulgence. And it's the person who, described here, is always needing to have a good time, partying it up, always indulging pleasure. They're overly attached to luxury, constantly needing the next fulfillment, pampering themselves with high end and special things. And you know, and, and this the problem is is this is a never uh, never ending pursuit. It's like chasing the carrot, right? You do the fun thing, you get the high, the pleasurable experience, and then now what are we gonna do? Now we're you know you know I, one of our children we were growing up we had a phrase she would all we'd do whatever we could do the funnest thing on earth. Now what are we gonna do for fun? Now what are we gonna do for fun? And it's just a never-ending thing. And sadly, some people never grow out of that. There are people that their life is governed by pleasure-seeking, whether it's in substance abuse or whether it's pampering themselves materialistically or sexual indulgence. Or, and just life is about a party as top priority, and they become selfish and irresponsible. And he says those who live that way will find they end up being poor and they will never be made rich. And not just financially, but even just in the poverty of their own soul. You'll never be enriched to live that way. The idea is you will always find yourself living unproductively, never getting ahead. You'll often lack what's needed, and you'll be so busy pursuing and indulging pleasure, you'll never be occupied in doing what's responsible, God says. You'll never be living in a realistic way, being productive. The idea is wise people live with moderation and a degree of restraint and self-discipline. They understand the balance between work and play and don't find themselves living and loving pleasure and ending up lacking what they need because life's a party and they're never being productive and living responsibly. Verse 18, the wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. So again, the idea here in due time even at the final judgment, God will turn the tables, make all wrongs right. Even those who are wicked will no longer prevail and be overthrown by the righteous God. And so when we see those things happening, we don't have to fret. We can know in due time, God will turn things and make all things right. Verse 19, better to dwell, he now says, in the wilderness, notice a little bit of a change, than with a contentious, and now he adds, she's not just contentious, angry woman. Now, I want you to notice here the progression that's clearly happening as the marriage relationship in our Proverbs seems to be deteriorating, right? I mean, if you just think of a realistic progression, Proverbs chapter 19 said the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Drip, 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 whether it's the drippy faucet or the leaky ceiling. He said the contentions of a wife are like that, like a constant annoying, dripping, that's causing damage, and when something's constantly dripping, what do you want to do? Just shut it off. Please, shut it off. So it starts with the contentions of a wife for a continual dripping. 
Then in verse 9, God goes on to say, don't get mad at me, this is God here, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So now she's driven him out of the house. He's literally gone up on the roof. He's stuck his face in a corner. Anything just to find some peace and quiet. And then now the progression goes further. Verse 19, now he's not up on the roof in the corner. He's actually out in the Judean wilderness. Now he's completely left the house and gone on a long-term hunting trip. And now he's out in the Judean wilderness, literally living out there, seeking to get away. The idea is to seek peace and quiet because he's tired of the constant agitation and antagonism. And sadly, she, through her continual contention and now her anger and frustration, has actually driven him not just away from her, not just out of the house, She's driven him completely away where he's gone out into the Judean wilderness again. It's just a reminder. Nobody wants to be around someone who constantly mistreats or annoys or an agitation and complaining is always agitating someone else. And look, some men, and, and please hear me, ladies, the word of God is very clear here and, and God's emphasizing these. Some men don't want to fight and so therefore because they don't want to fight nor do some men ever learn in my personal conviction how to personally in a healthy way assert themselves and rule their own households and their own wives in a healthy and appropriate way and to some degree and you're going to get offended by this but I'm going to say it learn how to some degree in a healthy way get their own wife under control and instead, what they do is they just detach. And that's not what any wife wants. But they just detach, and they pull away and further away and further away. And the sad thing is when that's going on, usually the, the downside of that is the wife tries harder and harder and harder to draw him back in, and ultimately sometimes things just become a very unhealthy cycle. And so God's word is just encouraging here. Listen, be aware a man oftentimes just wants peace and quiet to a degree. And look, and I think this works both ways. I'm not trying to say that a contentious, angry, nasty husband is any easier to live in. Certainly the word of God could go completely the other direction. God was the one that chose the gender pronouns here. And, and God knows what gender he means. But I think the principle is nobody likes to live in a situation, and sadly, what some will do is they'll just detach. They'll just be driven away. And that's the last thing that we want to do in our marriages and our relationships. So we have to be very careful here, cautious, that we don't allow that to go unchecked because it can bring real damage, God would say, to a marriage relationship. Wise people pay attention to such things. Verse 20 says, there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. So here the idea is, again, drawing a contrast of the outcome of one who lives wisely in good stewardship versus the one who lives wastefully as a fool and squanders things. And so this is the contrast here. Those who live wise and are good managers of all things, whether it's their money or their opportunities, 
the valuable things in their household. He says those who are wise, they end up having desirable treasure and good things in their houses. And again, I don't think that's just financial treasure and material treasure alone. I think that's a part of it. But I think there are treasures beyond financial treasures that there's just a value in living as a wise and a good steward. You, you bring great treasure into your life and your household. But those who are foolish, the contrast is they have a tendency to waste and to squander things, whether it's squandering their money, squandering opportunities, relationships, and the result of just squandering things wastefully is they end up finding that they're suffering lack and they're empty and they don't have what they need or what they want. And again, wise people live conservatively to a degree, whether it's money or anything else. They use stewardship. They live conservative. They budget. They use stewardship. They think about the long term where the Bible says in contrast, foolish people, the picture is there, squandering everything. Foolish people, they live impulsively. They live recklessly. They're hasty in their decisions. They're driven by immediate gratification. They see it. They want it. They get it. As soon as they get the money in their hand, they squander. They got to spend it right away. And God says it's very, very wise to take this into consideration. It's crucial. I really think, particularly when we look at verse 20, great, great principle in regards to how we manage our money and our resources. These are great truths to help us to be wise rather than foolish. He who follows righteousness and mercy, verse 21, finds life, righteousness, and honor. So there's, again, this sowing and reaping picture here. If we follow a right path, if we're merciful to other people, we find ourselves experiencing good things like life and righteousness and being honored rather than things that would be unpleasant. So again, it pays to live right, God would say. Verse 22, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. So this speaks of how wise people don't just stand by and watch, they get involved. They do things. They become engaged. He says the wise person doesn't just look up at the stronghold and say, hey, there's a battle to be won there, or, or that should be taken care of, or something needs to be done in that situation, and see it and talk about it. He says the wise person realizes there's a time to go beyond just standing there and watching and to become engaged. And they embrace opportunities. When they see a good cause or an opportunity, they act, they attempt what is good, they're willing to scale the city, they're willing to step out, to try and do something. And again, it's just a wisdom reminder that only those who attempt things are ever going to accomplish things, right? There's that old adage. It's not in Proverbs, but it's like a proverb. If you aim at nothing, what will you hit 100% of the time? Nothing, right? <laughs> and this is the idea. So he says the wise person realizes sometimes you got to be willing to step into the situation. You got to act. You got to do something. There are occasions where when you see something that needs to be done, you got to stop standing around and wisdom says, stop wishing for change, make an effort, do something, try and bring about change, scale the city, bring down that trusted stronghold. Verse 23, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. All we have to say to that is a hearty amen. <laughs> I mean, that is, one, that is one of those proverbs there. It's repetitious of the principles we've seen multiple times coming back to this problem of our own mouths, right? Boy, oh boy, how many times we've lived that, right? 
where we've gotten our soul into troubles, where if we would have just guarded our mouth and our tongue, we could have avoided a lot of trouble and heartache and headache. And boy, that is just a truth right there worthy of meditation and memorization. Let it be written in your heart and govern your mind. It'll spare you a lot of trouble, keep me out of a lot of problems in my own life if I could live by that better. Verse 24, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, and he acts with arrogant pride. So when our heart is governed by pride, having a superior attitude about ourself in some way, an inflated view of our own importance, he says that will always cause us to then act out with arrogant pride in the way that we speak to people, our behavior towards others. And look, one thing is clear in God's word is God, as well as people, do not like human arrogance, right? God's word is clear how much he despises pride and arrogance. God doesn't like it. And the reality is we all know as we interact with human beings, we would much rather interact with someone who has a spirit of humility, right? that's down-to-earth. We talk about easy people, low-maintenance people, down-to-earth. I mean, we, we like to interact with people who have a humility in their spirit, not those who have an arrogant nature and act in arrogant, prideful ways. So he says it's foolish to let yourself become prideful and not take that into consideration. Hey, man, I, I need to check my pride here. Because God says you will cause a wedge between you and him, and we can drive people away when we find ourselves at times acting with arrogant pride. You know, God help us at times. We all err there to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord if we're beginning to do that. Verse 25, he comes back to another topic he addresses often. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. So here's another, we've seen many of them, strong caution and condemnation by God of the foolishness of laziness, refusing to work. And that's what he describes there. Look at verse 25. His hands refuse to labor. It doesn't say he can't labor. That's not the situation here. This is someone who's choosing not to work. Someone who could work, but they are refusing to work. So it's a condemnation and a strong caution of someone who has plenty of, notice, desires and ideas. He says they have desires, the lazy man, but his desire is killing him because his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but he refuses to labor. The picture here is the lazy person, their wishful thinking but not ever being willing to actually work and do anything is the very thing that becomes their own ruin. And that can be a tendency with laziness. No lack of ideas, no lack of ideas and desires, wishful thinking and dreaming, but they're never willing to work. They're never willing to engage and actually roll up their sleeves and do something. And God says, that's not a wise way to live. The contrast is, but the righteous person, the one who does what's right, They give and do not spare. So the righteous person realizes in wisdom, look, work is something that I need to do to be responsible. That's wise step one. And then wisdom also says, it's not just so that I can be responsible and take care of myself and take care of my own burdens. It also gives me the privilege, if I have access, to be able to give and share and bless others and to be more like God, to be able to have not only enough, but when I have excess to be able to give and not spare in helping others. 
Verse 27, the sacrifices of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? So here the picture again. It does not matter if we're bringing religious sacrifices to God. If we are living wickedly, it still is disgusting and displeasing to God. So again, God is never going to be uh, appeased with some religious sacrifice if we're living in a wicked way morally in our life. And so sometimes that is a mistake that can be made. And God's saying that's a very foolish way to live, to think that we can live wickedly, but then bring some religious sacrifice to God. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm living in sin, but I go to church every Sunday, or, or I, I pay my tithe checks still every week, or I, you know, I, I do things to help people out, or I serve in this capacity, this volunteer service. And God says, I don't want your sacrifice. God says, you're sacri- What are you trying to pay me off? Are you trying to bribe me as God? And God says, the sacrifice of a wicked person is actually an abomination. How much more when he brings it with a wicked intention to kind of try and buy God off? He says, God wants us to live right, not to just give him religious sacrifices. A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. So again, false witnesses will be exposed. They'll never last long term. But the man who hears him, that is people who are reliable, they prove reliable, they will have endless opportunity to speak because credibility is what people are looking for. When you're a false witness and you destroy your credibility, it's hard for people to listen to you, but when you build your credibility, it opens opportunity for people to be willing to listen to you endlessly, and it's that credibility that gives the platform for people to want to listen. Verse 29, a wicked man hardens his face. The picture here is stubbornness, bold face, putting on a bold front to try and maybe misguide others to what one's really doing. But as for the upright, he establishes his own way. Those who live upright seek to think through things. They go forward in a right way. Verse 30, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The main idea of this proverb, despite how anyone plots or schemes, it is impossible to succeed, we might say, in fighting against God. He says it doesn't matter what kind of great wisdom or understanding someone's giving to you, if it is against the way of the Lord, that's foolishness, because it's not going to work. Oh, this is really good. Under, I got great wisdom. Man, you should do this. And, but if it's against the will of the Lord or the word of the Lord, God says, that's foolish. It's never going to work because nothing works in opposition to God's ways ultimately successfully. And what God desires of us and what God desires is going to come to pass regardless of who seeks to come against it or stop it. So look, people can plot in their wisdom and their understanding, oh, we're going to change this and we're going to change that and we're going to do this and we're, you know, that's it. We're you know, 2022, the year we're changing words and dictionaries. How much human stupidity can one contrive in an entire year? We're rewriting definitions of what man and woman is in a dictionary and thinking somehow, and God says, look, I don't care all your little human wisdom. It's never going to succeed. You can't win striving against God. Look, that's an encouraging thing as well because that means for all of us, it doesn't matter what someone does, plots, schemes. Oh, man, they're they're not going to succeed. You trust the Lord. People can plot and scheme. 
what God wants for your life is still going to come to pass. And rest in that. No plot or scheme of the devil or any person is going to succeed against what the Lord's counsel and plan is ultimately for your life. Verse 31, he concludes, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord or from the Lord. So notice, this speaks of this balance, as we talked before, of both the responsibility of man to do his part, but ultimately relying upon God to work in every situation as well. We can and we should do what we can to make things go well. That's the idea of the preparation of, of the horse for the day of battle. A horse was a great asset in military conflict and ancient warfare. It was like their tank. It was what assisted them, gave them great advantage. So he said, preparing the horse, doing your part, doing everything you can to contribute to things going well and succeeding, that's good. That's our responsibility. We should try and do everything we can to prepare and to, to bring about what would make things go well but he says success ultimately in the battle depends upon God bringing deliverance and victory to pass. And so the wisdom principle, preparation is wise, yet it's also wise to realize that my human perspiration is not the deciding factor ultimately. God is. We do our part, we do our best, and then we commit the rest. And we realize that we have to hope and reply upon, rely upon God to orchestrate things by his power being at work in cooperation with what we have done and what we're doing. Both are important. Should we prepare? Should we do our part? Should we? Absolutely, we should be responsible. And I don't think we should expect God to bless and endorse our irresponsibility or our lack of preparation. Oh, I'll just wait for the Holy Ghost to fall. He may go, I'm not falling on you. You're a knucklehead. You didn't do anything. But we also realize that perspiration is not enough, that victory, success, and deliverance comes from, Lord, I'm relying upon you to show up. <laughs> and if you don't show up because the battle belongs to you, nothing good's going to happen. And so there's that dual thing to keep in mind.